Well, it is great to be here with everyone this morning. Good to see you, as I said at the outset of services. I've been bouncing around a lot lately, and it's good to be back home. Good to be with you all to worship together. And uh, this next month, I think I'm scheduled to be gone once, but then there's also uh, my brother's my brother's baby's due uh, this coming month, so who knows, maybe I'll be two weekends all gone. Hopefully I'll just be gone once this, this month, but in either case, it's great to be here today. I'm happy to study with you this morning the things that I've been studying uh, recently and, and realizing the depth of, but not really, uh, never reaching the bottom of this stuff, and this, this morning, this lesson is especially that way. I've entitled it, Peria, uh, it's pronounced Periot, let's see, Perios, I had it before I got up here, let's see. Perisateras lupe is the way I think the, the Greek is pronounced. And there's no special, we're not going to go really deep into the Greek today, but uh, Chris used it on his lesson. He talked about Talitha Kamai, and I thought it was pretty intriguing, so I put it up here for the title of mine. This word is what we translate in English to mean excessive sorrow. And that's in, found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 that we're going to be studying around today. That word excessive sorrow is one of the things I want to focus on in our, in our run-through of these events in First and 2 Corinthians. So the events we're going to be talking about are in the context of the church at Corinth that received instruction to make some changes. And we're going to get into that. But essentially, they were told that they needed to make some wrongs right. They needed to clean some sin up. And eventually they were told, okay, now you, you did right, now, now come back together and, and, and restore one another and get this and get back together and make things uh, whole again. But in the process, he mentions something throughout. He mentions different levels of sorrow. And I wanted to introduce this study because there's not a whole lot of areas where I found it was an easy connection. But in this, in this uh, situation, there's several different connections to levels of sorrow. And I drew this up to kind of illustrate what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> you could also call, it, call this, I guess, a, a conscience gauge, but I've labeled it a guilt gauge. And the reason is we're going to get into some different scenarios with these people in Corinth, and they felt different levels of guilt. And really, Paul had to instruct them based on the way they were feeling about what was going on. Okay, so... <clears throat> So in this guilt gauge, essentially, he's going to tell us that there's a sweet spot that we need to be at with our guilt, with the way our conscience operates. And if we're on one side or the other, we can be in trouble. It's not necessarily, it's not a salvation gauge, but there's a healthy way our mind needs to function with regard to our conscience that God wants us to have. And it's not necessarily just that simple, you know. And, and I think we've heard the phrase, let your conscience be your guide. Have you heard that phrase? I used to think that was in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. So maybe if that was one of your preconceptions, maybe we can uh, uncover what the Bible says a little bit about this. <clears throat> like I said, in getting into this, I don't have all the answers, uh, but let's talk about a few things I did find. So on this far left end of the spectrum, you see I have it labeled red. Uh, the far left end of this gauge says... That maybe you feel this. I feel no guilt even when I do wrong. Okay? Now, on the far other end of the spectrum, in the other red area, <clears throat> this side says, I feel guilt even when no wrong is done. Or maybe when 
there is no reason for me to continue to feel guilt. Okay? Let's, now let's go to kind of the, the yellowish orange area where you're getting closer to the sweet spot, but you're still off. One of those areas could be, I feel guilt, but I take no action. So if you're noticing the left side of this spectrum is kind of those people and the way we can get in our minds to where we are, we are rebellious or we don't act on what God wants. Okay? And that can manifest itself in not even feeling guilt, doing wrong, don't even care. Or it can be, I feel guilt, but I'm not really doing anything about it. Okay, on the other side of the spectrum is the side that tends to feel more guilty. That maybe has a softer, more tender heart, but still has its own difficulties. And in the yellowish-orange area on this side, maybe it's, I feel guilty even though I've made my wrongs right. And really the ultimate place that God wants us to be at for my studies is God wants us to be at a place where guilt leads me to repent of the areas that I need to change. But I leave that guilt at the cross. That guilt has a function in my life, but that guilt does not have an extended place in my life. And if it does, it's getting over here into the area we don't need it to be. Okay, so let's talk about uh, this passage and how it kind of corresponds to this. In 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to be working through 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, and 2 Corinthians 7. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 5 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Namely, that someone has his father's wife. Verse 2 says, You have become, become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst. So Paul is calling them out here. As I mentioned at the outset, they had some sin. And it was clear. It was blatant. And they were just living with that sin in that congregation going, Oh, it's all right, man. We got you. You'll be okay. And Paul comes in and he's saying, No. No. you got to clean this up. And he says, You've turned arrogant instead of mourning. And so if we're, if we're looking at the spectrum that we kind of drew, and uh, I want to... I want to clarify, this spectrum is also not all-inclusive. It's very, very rough, and it's, it's very uh, overgeneralized as well. It doesn't include everything. But on this end of the spectrum, these people are feeling no guilt even when there is wrong that has been done. And that also needs to change. And he said that that person needed to be removed from their midst. They couldn't have that person just sinning and living the life, whatever the life they wanted to live, and keep coming to church and just act like everything is normal. He said, no, you got to deal with that sin. Verse 3, he goes on to say, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, so I'm not really there, but I'm with you in my, in, in my mind and my spirit, he says, I have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. So he's, he's saying that, you might not be judging this, and it might not seem like there's any guilt here, but there is already guilt being assessed. So Paul was coming to give them a reality check. He wasn't coming to place guilt on them. He was giving them a reality check of the guilt that was already there. He goes on to say, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in, in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul's ultimately saying, this man needs to be dealt with because we want him ultimately to be saved. 
And if his sin is not dealt with, that's not going to change. And he's going to become more and more numb to it. As we're going to see later, that we can become, in First, Second Timothy, we can become calloused and seared against the truth. Our conscience can be seared to where we don't feel anymore. And he said, you guys need to call that out so that he may be aware and that he may be saved. So these people are on this end of the spectrum where maybe some of them feel guilty about it, but they're not doing anything about it. Verse 6, he goes on to say, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? I like that line. He says, your boasting is not good. Like, it's, it's just that simple. It's not a good thing because when you do that, when you leave it going unnoticed, do you not understand that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A leavening agent, as everyone here I think knows, leaven is the thing that makes your bread rise. It creates a chemical reaction. You have a leavening agent that creates a chemical reaction that produces CO2, which fills up the bread with air, and it causes it to rise. Okay, so he's saying you get a little bit of leaven in there. He's making a connection between something they would know in, in bread and the congregation. We get a little leaven in here. We get sin that's not taken care of in here, and that influence starts to spread. It'll, it'll contaminate the whole body. He's saying you can't let that happen. Clean out the old leaven, verse 7, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. So he's saying you've got to be pure. You are pure. So, so clean out that stuff and become pure. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So there's no reason for us not to be pure, he's saying. Christ is our Passover. He has made it to where we should be clean. We should be pure. Verse 8, Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's getting real with them to show them that it's time to clean it up, and they need to live that untainted lifestyle that God has called them to live. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but undealt with sin will truly rust and corrupt a congregation. It's interesting to me that almost every time we read of God asking someone to turn, he always, most of the time he includes this, he includes an arrow pointed in the right direction. He includes a U-turn, but it's not a U-turn with a dead end and say, you better stop and you're going to, you know, you're going to, whatever, bad stuff's going to happen to you. He includes a U-turn so that that person can turn and go in the right direction. And that U-turn is here when he says, so you can get on the right track and live with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, already pointing them on the right track. And that's going to be important as we get further into our study and think about the way uh, we process guilt and process uh, the way our, we deal with our conscience. So this first part, we've talked about the ways you can be on the left side of the spectrum to have a conscience that is really not doing enough for you or that you're not doing enough with. And he says to respond to guilt with repentance. That's, that's the simplest way I think we need to, to look at this and keep it right there. He says that we need to respond with repentance and we need to make it right with God and with the church. So in this, in this situation, it was the church because it was a public sin. Everybody knew about it. Paul knew about it. He wasn't even there. So not every sin is of public nature. We don't have to come before and make every sin we have known. But we need to repent. 
this is something that has to happen with every sin. We have to repent of it. And sometimes in my life, I've gotten the cart ahead of the horse, and I've asked God to forgive me really often before I've really repented. And that can kind of create a cycle of thinking you're really trying to change. But really, you're just you're, you're feeling guilty and asking God to forgive you, but you're not putting your effort in to making the change. So part of his message is get off that rat wheel and make the change you need to make, deal with the guilt, and move on from it, okay? So those are the, that's, this is the intention of guilt, is to be something that causes us to repent, okay? But maybe you're saying, you know, I am, in, I am hard deep into this red zone on the left side. I've got no guilt even when I do wrong. What am I supposed to do? What do you want me to do with that? I, I want to change, maybe. Maybe I want to want to change, but I don't want to. So what am I supposed to do with that? I've had people tell me that. What do I do with that? Well, the Holy Spirit beat them to it because in Hebrews 9, he says this, verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To the person who wants to say, no, I'm too far gone, no, that's an out. The Holy Spirit says, no, God can work in you. It, with man, it is impossible. We cannot seem to get past our struggles without God's freedom he offers. And, and the Holy Spirit wanted us to know that you can. If you're in that place where you're feeling like you're stuck in dead works and you don't feel anything you need to feel, that's a dangerous place, but it's not a place you have to stay. And the people I've talked to about that, they want, a lot of times they want to stay there. And they, and they give up too early without giving God a chance to work in their lives. And the message from Hebrews is that we must take time. And we need to praise God for that. Every one of us. Because really, that person making that excuse would have to imply that really none of us could get there. Because Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners, and he did it. So if you're saying you can't, then really none of us can. Because we were all once dead in sin. We could all walk away with the same excuse. I think that's a lot of times it makes people feel better about what they don't want to do. Is they feel like, uh, I couldn't anyway, so I don't, maybe it won't make me feel as guilty. We could all walk away with that excuse. It's easy to say that. That's an out. But we instead should praise God for the beautiful picture that none of us are too calloused. None of us are too numb. None of us are too seared to be touched by God's love and by his changing hand. Okay, now on to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It goes on to say, so this is after uh, his first letter. He is now writing a second letter to the Corinthians, and it's good news. Listen what he has to say. Verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. He said, the first time I came to you, it was hard on me. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. He goes on to say, but if anyone has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not for me, but in some degree, not to say too much, for all of you. Sufficient for such a person is this punishment 
which was imposed by the majority. So this is what he was talking about before. They had to, to get that sin out. And they had to, they had to if he was not going to change, they had to, to not let him be uh, participating, to be among them anymore. And he says there, that was a sufficient punishment that everyone imposed on him. Okay, you took care of it. That was enough. Okay, so what does he say next? So before I move on, uh, it's important to note, I think, that in Paul's letter here, he addresses the pain that was caused. And he acknowledges the pain that people had because of this sin. Because there, there's a lot of hurt feelings in a congregation. When sin goes on undealt with, it can create problems. And he says, and he acknowledges that. He acknowledges the pain people have felt there. He's saying, it's not my pain, it's your pain, and that's real. He didn't want to just dismiss it and, and move on from it. He showed them that their pain mattered. He goes on to say in verse 7, so that on the other hand, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a person might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's the word we started off with in the beginning, that excessive sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So do you see how he started everything out on the left side of the spectrum where he was saying, you know, you're not feeling anything you need to feel right now. You need to wake up and change some things. But then after the change is made, there's this beautiful balance where he says, okay, on the other hand, now you need to forgive and comfort him because this person can easily fall into the right side of guilt or the... I'm looking directionally, not the correct side, but the right side of guilt where, where they go the other direction too much. And that guilt swallows them up. And that is a very, very real danger. It wouldn't have been mentioned in here if it wasn't. He was really concerned about this. He had to make sure he wrote another letter that was like, first and foremost, make sure you do this. And one of the things I love about reading this is not just kind of the Here's what you need to do to take care of church issues. But it reminds me, God's pattern of dealing with me. God's pattern of dealing with me says, if he's telling me to reaffirm my love for my brother, what does that say about his love for me? What does that say about when I'm feeling guilty, when I am in the wrong? That means his pattern of dealing with the sinner is that he will reaffirm his love to us. Now, that comes in different ways, I think. I think that's something he can do personally for us in different ways. But it, I think it largely comes through his word. So, as, we, as we're going to start talking now about this right side, dealing with this right side. This is kind of my, my focus for this lesson is more on this right side. And, and that is one of those things that we have to understand is that God wants to reaffirm his love to us and comfort us <clears throat> if you're in this position. Okay, let's see if I covered everything I wanted to on this slide. <clears throat> okay. So now going on to 2 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> so this is a little later on the book, <clears throat> but he's hitting on the same topic that I'm trying to stay with and kind of pick up as we go through this book. Is this topic of sorrow he continues with. Verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. 
For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God. So him saying sorrowful according to the will of God tells us that there is a a sorrow we can feel that is not according to the will of God. And that sorrowful is what he addressed in chapter 2 when he said, don't let that person go too far into, into deep, dark sorrow, deep guilt where they can't get back from it. That is a sorrow that is not according to the will of God. He says, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So here's the sweet spot. Verse 9 gives us the sweet spot. The godly sorrow was designed to create repentance. And he says to a point. That is like he's pointing at the final issue. That's to the point of of repentance. That's as far as guilt needs to go. Okay? Verse 10, he goes on to say, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. He says that is a tool to get you to a certain place. It, it, It has a production use. He says that that produces it without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And this can be a silent killer for a spiritual life. It can eat people alive on the inside, this sorrow. And here he's kind of showing us the spectrum He's showing us that there is a spectrum of guilt. There's a sorrow that will lead to death. And there's a sorrow that leads to repentance that he is seeking for us to find. You know, this is a huge life lesson for me. Because I tend to be very much on this side of the spectrum. And growing up, I've had different difficulties with that. And it was tough for me because I... You know, when you're, when you're just learning, you feel like, well, if I, if I know what the Bible says, and I'm trying to do what's right, then my conscience is, is automatically going to um, steer me in the right direction, right? That's not necessarily the case. And here, that we know that's the case because he's trying to teach them to train their conscience. He's teaching them to let their conscience not just be guided by whatever they're feeling, not just by guided by whatever the, the situation will, will push, because a situation like this they were dealing with can cause a lot of feelings that are hard to get past. He made a point to teach them how to handle this. You know, for me, I thought it was growing up just kind of a, you know, whatever, a, an immature thing. When I was playing baseball, even simple things like that, I would, I would come back to the dugout, and if I struck out, man, I would th- throw my helmet sometimes, my dad would make me run out to the fence and back. He was trying to get that out of me because it was, it, was a, it was not good for my own enjoyment of the game. It wasn't good for anyone there. That, that was the same in basketball. Uh, I remember my dad, after a game, you know, I didn't feel like I shot that well. He was like, you played fine. And, and he was like, Michael Jordan only shoots like, what, 40%? He's the, the best in the world. And, and my comment was something like, yeah, well, I wasn't going up against defenders that Michael Jordan goes up against. <laughs> like, like, what do you say to a, to a 13-year-old who's looking at things like that? But the problem is, that's a pattern of thinking that I developed from, a, you know, whatever. It was, it was my side of the spectrum that I deal with. But it's just as much of a hindrance. Maybe this side, you know, you, maybe it's the big danger is, okay, you might be doing things and falling into sin. You don't, you know, you can't, you're not making right. But there's danger in going the other way because it can rob your joy. 
that took the joy out of the car ride for my dad and a lot of, a lot of, after a lot of games. And, and it was not healthy. And when I started to play my best, you know, later in high school as I developed, it was when I just learned to kind of let things go. And, and it's not something that just goes away. It's something that I have to work on a lot. And, and I think, you know, when I, when, I was, when I thought about this growing up, I thought it was more, you know, something I just worked on. And then I started trying to, you know, I started working more with other people. And I realized how common it is. It started with young people. You know, I started noticing with some of my younger friends who were trying to do what was right. And this was like a common thread. Like, why is everyone over here feeling all this guilt? That's not right. God doesn't want that for us. Look at this passage. He says there's a certain sorrow that leads to death. Why is that happening? There's a lot of maturity that needs to happen to get past that. And, you know, I, I saw how common it started being with people I was surrounded with. It made me feel a lot better. But then I realized that it's common with everyone. Because I would be sitting in a nursing home with <clears throat> an older brother or sister. Maybe they're close, maybe they're uh, getting close to death. Or maybe they're in, in the hospital for a really serious condition. And that, and that older person who I hadn't seen really do anything like this kind of broke down sobbing. And they wanted to pray because there were things that they still felt guilty for. Or when they were getting really you know, close to the end, they were still weighing on their mind. And there's a point to which guilt is helpful. Guilt gets us to a place where we need to repent. That is the point of repentance. There's a place that it can go, though, that I think everyone deals with. Whether someone's in a nursing home, on their deathbed, you know, maybe living, having lived a life of faith, those things come back and haunt them. I think this is something that people face all the time. And I had different ones who helped me with it. But if you're listening and, and you're struggling with that, you're, you're not the only one. And, and I'm not going to get into everything that might help that, or I, I don't know everything that might help that. I've, I've done some things that have been very helpful for me. So if you want to talk, I'd love to. Uh, maybe someone here in this podcast later would, would like to reach out to me. I'll, I'll try to make myself available. But we need to remember that this is a process to deal with. I'm getting close to my time, but so I'm going to move on. So this is not uncommon throughout Scripture as well. In, in Psalm 38, verse 4, David says, For my guilty deeds have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. That sense of being covered and not being able to get out from behind the things that you have done. It can be on a big scale. It can be on a small scale. That is one of the things that people deal with in general, is learning to navigate failure. I think, you know, because it's of a spiritual nature, I thought that it was just going to be something that worked itself out. But from sports, I learned, like I said, that that's not the case. And my friend, he had a, my friend was kind of was similar to me. He would beat himself up a lot after, you know, a bat at bat or something. He drew, a, he drew an arrow on the underside of his cap that just told him, go on to the next play. Always forward, never backward. And that was something that struck a chord with me. I liked that. I had another friend on my baseball team who, who uh, would, would get all flustered in the, in the batter's box, and he would make a bad swing on a bad pitch. He was kind of one of those guys who would swing at a ball out of the zone, and, and he would just 
get so frustrated. And so he developed this little mechanism where he would take his bat and flush the toilet after he made a bad swing. He would literally turn around, put his bat on the ground, and flush the toilet. That's gone. That's, that's, I'm past that. Dealing with failure is a very common thing in, in every area of life. And you, you run into a lot with golf. I've learned a lot lately. It's a matter of whether we can get past that. It's a matter of whether we can move forward with it. And that's something that's very true in our spiritual lives as well. So the thing I want us to, to come away with is guilt is, is a tool. It's not a lifestyle. Guilt is a tool to get us to a place. It can be a tool for God's use to turn for repentance. But I believe it can also be a tool for the devil's use. I'm careful with this one because I know there's ways God can work on my heart that I don't fully understand. So I don't want to accuse God of something that, uh, that, that, uh, I'm not, I don't want to accuse God of something that I'm saying the devil's doing, but, but there are things, like I've said, that, that the devil can do to drive a wedge between us and God. And if God, if the devil can make you feel like you are never doing right with God, that's a victory for him. That is a victory for him because he doesn't have to get you to, to go off in sin. If you're just going to, if you're going to, if you're going to crumble because of your own separation from God and your own guilt, look at Judas. That's what happened with Judas. Judas was a combination of both, I think, because he was not changing his life. But Judas fell deep into guilt. And he ended up taking his own life. And the devil swallowed him up with guilt. And so I'm comfortable because of things like that saying that the devil can use guilt as a tool against us. Like I said at the beginning, that phrase, let your conscience be your guide, that's not anywhere in the Bible. The closest thing I think we have to is Romans 14, where it talks about, you know, don't just, don't do it, just offend your conscience. If you think something's wrong, don't keep doing it. But that's very different than letting your conscience be your guide. We are to guide our consciences with wisdom, and then from there, we do what we can with Romans 14. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And to, to continue with this point of the devil using it, in Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. If you want to try to understand more about why you feel guilty, maybe too much, Satan's, one of his descriptions, he is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to stick that in your face. And he wants to condemn you. That helped my mind to understand, okay, my guilt isn't all I think it is. And I think this is one of the important points that I don't want to spend too much time on because I'm running out of time. But our minds are part of the fall. Okay, so we have physical injuries. You can break an arm and then it can get better, and you can play basketball with a broken, you know, with an arm that's healed from that. I think we're learning more and more how the mind can be ill. The mind can be, have a, a sprained ankle, you might say, for the mind, or an issue that continues for a long time. There can be illnesses of the mind that are difficult to deal with, that can cause some of this, and they can worsen this right side of the spectrum where you're feeling guilty after you've made things right. Or, in my case, maybe even filthy, feeling guilty to the extent of things where there's nothing wrong and you just felt perpetually guilty. I've dealt with that. 
and it was crushing. And so me understanding that the mind is part of the fall, the suffer, the, the fall of, of man where, where uh, the body and the mind all had the, the effects uh, of the fall. And so now there, there's ailments and injury that continues and it affects this situation with guilt. So just understand as you battle guilt, understand you're not just fighting maybe a spiritual battle. Sometimes there's things you're dealing with on a, on a, a chemical level in your brain. And uh, there was some on this, but I don't know if I want to get any deeper into that because I'm not a doctor. And uh, there's, there's a place for, for more of this advice, but I don't think it's necessarily for me in the pulpit. But just understand, I think we feel like sometimes that because the mind is tied in with our spiritual lives, it can't be tainted or or twisted by the curse of the fall and by mental ailments. And so that's why it's confusing to deal with guilt because it's like this would just be a purely spiritual thing, but it's not. It's tied in with the way our minds work. Okay. 1 John 3 says this, beginning verse 19, we will know by this what we are, that we are of the truth. So he started out talking about how we need to be doing right, loving through our actions. He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth. And will set our heart at ease before him. That if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows all things. So the point there from 1 John chapter 3 is that there gets to a point where maybe your heart is condemning you. But just rest assured, God knows. God's greater than your heart. And he will set our heart at ease before him. I dealt with this stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm young, so I can't say it's just been so long, but for me, it felt like forever. It was years. And I'm at a point now where whatever the, those mental muscles are strengthened or whatever it happened, maybe those, those coping skills got developed better to where my heart is more set at ease, and I can praise God for that. But he goes on verse 21 to say, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if you're sitting here today, you're like, man, I'm not really sure I can, I can relate to that. I think there's... A lot of people who probably feel that way. Praise God for that. Praise God because you have confidence before God, and that is a blessing in itself. So just for a couple points of, of help for the people who are dealing with this, those are supposed to be one, two, and three. Uh, but understanding the bigger picture is helpful. So to understand that God's whole plan is pointed at redemption. God's whole plan is pointed at redemption. So it's not going to be his you know, trap door that gets us anywhere else. It's not going to be God waiting to condemn us. His whole plan is pointed at redemption, so why, why, why would he ever want to catch us tripping up? He wants to help us. Point number two is that there gets to a point where we can be disagreeing with God. Do we really want to be in that place? That was one of the things that helped my mind rationalize, whoa, it's not just, you know, as long as you're feeling guilty, you know, or as long as you're, you're wanting to do right, then you're doing good. No, there comes a point where you're disagreeing with God. And do we really feel like that's a healthy place to be? Because God says, I have set your sin apart from you as far as the east is from the west. Do we really want to disagree with God on something that important? And the third thing is that if you can't be forgiven, or if you're not right with God, then who? 
Many people who, who deal with this, I think, need to ask themselves this question. Who's going to be saved then? I mean, can, can anyone? Paul said, uh, I am the, the chief of all sinners, and he said he was forgiven. So we need to keep that bigger picture in our minds and to develop those thought processes. It's going to take time. Develop those thought processes, thought processes that veer toward what God has said about us and not what maybe our, our irrational thinking is telling us day in and day out. So here's the spectrum again. Uh, I don't think I need to go through it with you. I just want to let you know that I believe from passages like this one, we can see that there's a spectrum where you feel no guilt, even when doing wrong, but then you can feel too guilty, maybe in a situation where you don't need to feel guilty anymore. And God has said that he wants us to leave that guilt at the cross where it belongs. Yes, we need to repent. But after we repent, we leave that guilt at the cross where it belongs. Last verse, in 2 Corinthians 7, he went on to say, What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. That indignation is like hatred toward what you used to be involved with. He's telling them how, how it changed them to be concerned about what God thinks and to be indignant toward what's wrong. You know, I didn't realize you could change your perspective that much on something. I thought, man, how am I going to get past this? I just like it, or I think it's funny, or I, whatever it is. I don't want to, how am I going to get past this? God says you get to a place where you're indignant toward maybe things you used to find pleasurable. Because you see its effects, you see the pain, you see the wrong for what it really is. You shine light on it. He says, what fear, what vehement desire. That vehement desire is, is a, a flaming passion for what's right. What zeal. What vindication. And so all these things can be produced from that godly sorrow that he wants us to have and not get stuck in the circles of guilt unnecessary. I've used up all my time this morning. Thank you to everyone for being patient today. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.